gracious God, your word has never been silent. Give us the courage to hear your word, to know your word, to speak your word. Amen. Please be seated. Ours is a faith of universal claims. And sometimes those universal claims can get Christianity into a bit of trouble. Look no further than poor Galileo, much maligned by the church for discovering that the earth revolved around the sun, in contradiction to the plain text of scripture. In one of Galileo's many heresy trials, he reportedly said, the Bible teaches us the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. Even poor Galileo turned out to be only partially right. Yes, the earth revolves around the sun, but Galileo thought that the sun was the center of the universe. Now we know that we orbit a small speck of light in a galaxy made up of millions of stars in a much wider universe, all in perpetual motion. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through the Word. The beginning of John's Gospel makes a universal claim. John ups the stakes of the story of Christmas. We still find ourselves in the midst of the 12 days of Christmas. And because I know some of you went there as soon as I said 12 days, we are on day six. Look for the swans swimming. Christmas is an ongoing celebration in the church, even if the stores have already moved on to Valentine's Day. The incarnation takes some time to digest. So even after the shepherds have gone home, post-silent night, John comes to tell us about the word, the logos, that Greek philosophical term. John's gospel raises the stakes and tells us that this Jesus has universal consequences. This hymn from John, the first verses of the Gospel's first chapter, it takes the specific event of Jesus' birth and plays out truly universal questions. Much of the church's teaching on Jesus' identity as God, as the second person of the Trinity, is sourced from these verses. In the beginning was the Word. That is to say, Jesus is co-equal with God. The word participated in all of creation. Without the word, not one thing came into being. That is a universal claim. The very same person who was present in Jesus was present in the creation, in the creation of all things. As the 20th century theologian Paul Tillich put it, God is the ground of all being, all, universal. This morning, the universal claim is made in a literal sense, not exactly the way that heavens go, as Galileo cautioned, but universal in terms of God's relationship to all things, the whole cosmos. All is shaped by God. All is close to God. All belongs to God. From the greatest galaxy to the smallest atomic particle. Even the flesh, the sarks in Greek, it's a term that Paul uses for the worst of human stuff. 
Paul talks about how we live in the flesh and and it gets dangerously close to this dualistic understanding what is graceful and what is awful. Even that worst of human stuff, the ultimate other of God. In John's gospel, it's not other at all. The word becomes flesh, sarks. Nothing and no one is far from God. The universality of this passage is breathtaking and healing in a world that can feel so distant from God. I know that many of us in this congregation struggle with universal claims. I do. Partly this is because for Western Christians, universality has been tied to colonialism. The expansion of Christianity has really been the expansion of Christendom. Folks have converted to our faith at the tip of a sword. Indigenous peoples in this hemisphere were baptized and became subjects of European empires at the same moment. The ancestors of many in this congregation were forced from their homes, sold into slavery, and became Christian as part of their obedience to their supposed owners. People across Christian history were made to confess the creed on pain of death. So it becomes historically difficult to talk about universal truth in Christianity. Other opinions for much of our history were simply not allowed. Some of you know that in a couple of short weeks I will be headed to India. I promise I'm not going for very long and that it wasn't until after the tickets were purchased that I heard the story about the young man who attempted to preach the gospel to that uncontacted tribe off of India's coast. I'm not headed anywhere near those uncontacted folks. Though I heard the story after I had bought the tickets, a few weeks ago I did have to apply to a visa, or for a visa to the country. And following the instructions I received from the trip leader, I emphasized that though I was a priest, I was not coming as a missionary. India is wary of foreign religious leaders, especially Christians, coming to convert its citizens. In fact, I'm going to India for quite the opposite kind of experience. I'm going with a group of American monks and religious seekers to pray among the Indian people. We'll be staying in both a Vedanta center, a Hindu religious place, and a Catholic ashram. That's what they call it. It's an Indian word for monastery. I chose this trip for my continuing education partly in response to the passion we heard when the Vestry and I initiated a conversation about goal setting earlier this year. So many in this congregation are curious about other religions, about how we relate. As the Vestry and I listened to that curiosity echo from so many in this congregation, I thought, I need to find a way to learn more about being a Christian in dialogue with other faiths. How do we hold together our sense of religious belonging and yet bless the religious belonging of our neighbor? The most famous resident of the Catholic ashram we're visiting was an English Benedictine, Father Bede Griffiths, a student of C.S. Lewis. In 1965, after many years in India, he wrote, what is required is a meeting of the different religious traditions at the deepest level of their experience of God. Hinduism is based on a deep mystical experience and everywhere seeks not to know about God, 
but to know God. It is at this level that the Christian and the Hindu have to meet. Bede went to India not to compel the conversion of the Hindus, but to meet God in their faith, to dialogue with them at the deepest level, to learn together about the identity of God. The most famous resident of the other place we're staying, the Vedanta Center, is named Swami Vivekananda. He was the teacher who brought Hinduism to the West. And he gave his famous speech at the 1893 Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. In the speech, Swami Vivekananda told the story of a frog in a well. And the frog had lived its whole life in the well and thought the well was the whole world. One day, a frog from the sea fell into the well. He tried to teach the first frog about the sea. But the first frog responded, Nothing can be bigger than my well. There can be nothing bigger than this. This fellow is a liar, so turn him out. Vivekananda pokes at the difficulty of universal claims, especially for religion. These kind of claims have often been in our history short-sighted, and they've required a refusal of new information. I'm grateful to be part of the tradition that says that our church is not the whole pond, that points beyond ourselves. In February, our bishop will be here, and a number of folks will be confirmed or received. They will become official Episcopalians. It's a bit tricky to explain to the newcomers here, the folks that take the pilgrimage class, uh, that as the priest and pastor of Holy Communion, I can't make someone a member of our church. We believe membership is bigger than the parish, bigger than this particular corner of Del Mar. We are part of a wider body. In that sense, we are a Catholic church. In the text here, Catholic is spelled with a lowercase c, breathe easy. The word means universal. We believe ourselves to be part of a universal faith tradition, much bigger than the four walls of this church. As Episcopalians, we belong to the Anglican Communion, the third largest body of Christians on the planet. There are close to 80 million Anglicans out there. And at our best, Anglicans have never limited our sense of church to a narrow tribalism. We've seen ourselves as a particular historic component of the wider church Catholic, the universal church. Or, as our presiding bishop likes to say, the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement. The sense of universality that's baked into our tradition, it can ask us to get outside our comfort zone, to go explore. I often ask folks when they visit another country if they went and found the local Anglicans. If you head off to London, don't miss Evensong at St. Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey. You're invited to come with us this summer to El Salvador to learn alongside Episcopalians who are fighting for human rights in Central America. If you find yourself in Boston, spend some time on retreat just off Harvard Square with the Episcopalian monks of the Society of St. John the Evangelist. I know a couple of our members met up in Paris earlier this fall and went to the American Cathedral together. Within our tradition, we can glimpse that sense that God always invites us out into wider and wider circles. 
God is there to meet us out beyond our own property lines. So might we also go and visit God in the houses of worship beyond our own tradition? Universal claims can cause problems for Christians, as they did in colonial times, as they did for Galileo. Sometimes a sense of universality can make people of faith behave in ways that are surprisingly small. It took the church more than 300 years to apologize to the scientists. The church has just begun to apologize to indigenous peoples and to claim its responsibility for upholding the institution of slavery. Universal claims have been and can be problematic. But we have a faith that makes universal claims. And held gently, universal claims can also be an invitation. In the beginning was the word. All things came into being through the word. What came into being through the word was life, a life to enlighten everyone. When we have the sense that God is acting in wider ways than we might imagine, when we're inspired by poetry like the first chapter of John's Gospel, we might discover an invitation to explore, to go and seek God where God is willing to be found. We might find that sense, as the Second Vatican Council put it, that the Spirit blows where it pleases that God is out there all across our universe, in every people group, in every language, part of all creation, universal claims can transform, can intimate that all of creation is a sacrament of God's love. We can go from using faith as a litmus test to find the insiders, to seeing the tenets of our faith as an invitation an invitation to see what is good and true and beautiful, for, to look for the ways God is living and active. Here in St. Louis, in El Salvador, in India, even in Rome, can we experience the word of God continuing to bring life and light, even in the places we weren't taught to look? As Christmas continues, how do you hold the news of this season? Are you skeptical? Does claiming Jesus as a universal figure make you nervous? Nervousness is probably good. It keeps one humble. Are you frustrated with the history of faith and with those who would still like to force their beliefs on their neighbor? Frustration can be good as well. It can lead us to work for change. Even in the midst of the nerves and the frustration, can you find a little wonder this Christmas season? A little awe? That you belong to a tradition that would make such a bold claim? Can you kindle the embers of hope in the teaching of the church that God's word continues to create, to bring light, to bring life, to bring love? There might just be a message worth the universal teaching. Amen.